Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good. Most of you doing good. If you're not doing well, we're glad you're here too. So hopefully the Lord will do something in your life. How about that? I loved worshiping today. Wasn't that awesome? You know, it's possible, it's possible to lead in worship and not really worship. You know that? You know, some of, most of us don't play instruments and do things like that. Maybe you've been in those environments. But I was just, I was thinking a drummer today uh, for leading us in worship because when we were, we were, he was playing, I saw he was singing the words and I thought, oh, that guy's worshiping. Like, it's not just like playing the drums and making sure that he had the beat on, which I could not do that, uh, but he was leading us and I was, it brought me into worship more. So hopefully something like that happened to you. Maybe you heard somebody singing around you or it's possible to preach the word and not be worshiping. It's possible to play an instrument and not be worshiping. It's possible to attend church and not really worship. And uh, I hope that you've already had that experience. And if not, uh, we'll pray that it happens in a moment. Today, what we're going to do, we're actually wrapping up our series we've been doing for six months in Hebrews. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. I told the first service, I'll tell you, there's uh, from verses 7 to 25, a ton of content. We're not going to cover all of it. My hope is I'll drop enough breadcrumbs from that passage that you'll go, I need to be in there more. And you'll come back and get the meal. And so we're going to have a little snack together as we open up the scriptures. And Lord willing, God's going to transform our lives. So let's pray that he does that. And then also next week, uh, we're starting a brand new series, but it's from Hebrews. <laughs> like, I thought we did something. Um, but if you remember, we kind of skimmed over Hebrews chapter 11. And so for the months of July and August, we're going to go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. There's a ton of stories in there. And we just didn't have time to unpack all those. And so we're going to spend some time in there. So if you know somebody that needs some courage or inspiration or challenge to step into what God's calling them to do. Uh, we're titling the series Risk, and uh, we're going to talk about risking it all for God. Are you ready to put your yes on the table, lay it all out there? And some of us, honestly, we're like, I don't know, you're counting the cost. Uh, if you know somebody that's like that, bring them to church. Next week, we're going to start a series. We're going to be talking about that very thing. And if you want to read ahead, Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to go kind of encounter by encounter and maybe fill in some other ones too throughout the Bible uh, for our summer series. But I'm going to pray as we wrap up Hebrews 13 today. Father, um, thank you that you are a good God. You are gracious that in all things you're doing good, even in awful things, in earthquakes and tragedies and cancer and divorce, you're still present and working. That's hard for us to fathom because your ways and our ways are not the same. And I don't know what you're doing today. And there are a lot of people listening that are online and in this room. And, and then there's kids around this campus. And there's different stuff happening with people having conversations. Uh, thank you for being present. Will you do your thing? I pray for myself. Give me boldness, um, unlike I've ever had before in any sermon. And give us boldness in obeying your word, unlike we've ever had before in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me ask you today, as we get started in the sermon, what is the dumbest thing you've ever done? Are you laughing at yourself or are you sitting next to somebody right now? <laughs> Do you get that question? I know you. Uh, you think about it, we've like all done some dumb stuff. Sometimes it's absent-mindedness. You ever just walk into a room and then forget why you're there? <laughs> well, that's odd. Or you lose something that's like essential, like your keys. You're already running late. You can't find your key. You know, I lost my whole car one time. I was over at South Point Mall. I came out and then I was like, did someone steal my car? Did I park somewhere else? I walked around the entire place. At one time, I was like questioning my very existence. Like, did I drive here? How did this happen? Why am I here? Like, what's it? how did you even get in that moment? Like, absent-mindedness. And you know what? We're, like, as a, as a whole city, we're pretty smart people. I saw somebody from my hometown. I, I was born and raised in one of what's been voted one of the worst places to live. And so, you know, Raleigh's voted like one of the best places to live. And somebody had posted about that from my hometown. And so I started looking. They were the seventh worst place. And I wrote, not being sarcastic, that's improvement. Because when I moved here, we were the second worst place. And so I started going on this trail of like the studies. And Raleigh is regularly voted one of the most educated cities in the country. 2017, I think we were number two. Uh, most recently, we're always in the top like 15, top 10 uh, cities that are out there. And Durham's right there with them as well. And so my experience is I know some of y'all. <laughs> and there are a lot of PhDs here. Most of us, and myself included, are educated beyond our intelligence. And as Christians, most of us are educated beyond our obedience. But it's always fun to see that there are other stupid people when you've been a stupid person. So I take joy in that. In fact, I've read headlines before and uh, saved them or saw them or whatever reasons. I read a couple this week uh, that someone had documented. Uh, one of them was this. I'm not a math person. It says, we hate math. Say four in 10, a majority of Americans. 
Not a math guy, but I don't think that's how that works. I liked this one even more. Homicide victims rarely talk to police. I want to know the time they did. I want to read that story. But most of us don't read headlines. We've got these things now, and so we don't read newspapers. We just pop on our phones. And we, studies have shown that phones make us stupider, and some of you are using it right now. Stop that. No, here we go. Oh. We invented this thing called the selfie or the ussy, and uh, we take pictures of ourselves like this and do all that. Do you know that there are more people that die from taking selfies every year than from shark attacks? Which is really interesting when you see this guy's selfie. And after the first service, a guy texted me a selfie of himself with sharks. So people in our church are doing that. I'm not endorsing that. That's a bad idea. We're talking about stupidity right now. Okay. Another one. So this reporter. Hey, you go to a baseball game? Why, why do they talk about keep your eye on the ball? Just get a good selfie. She said after this, she's a news reporter, that she didn't even know that that ball whizzed by her head. No, she was not hit. Until she saw the picture. We become unaware of the things that are happening around us often with that. And social media has really changed the world. Some of you have seen the social media challenges that are out there, the cinnamon challenge. You remember the one, uh, it was like the Kiki challenge. You get out of your car and dance next to your car while the car's driving. That's a bad idea, just so you know. Lots of stories with that. There was one that happened in 2021 that I must have missed. I didn't even see it. It was called the milk carton challenge. Did y'all see that? People would stack up milk cartons, which I'm thinking, you have a milkman? Where do you get milk cartons nowadays? Well, they stack up milk cartons, climb up them, and when you get to the top, then you've completed the milk carton challenge. But most people couldn't get to the top. So they actually put out news articles warning the public of how dangerous this is. I read one article, the doctor is in there speaking. Hey, these are the injuries we're seeing. Don't do this. It could change your life, like all this bad stuff. The end of the article, the reporter says, a lot of hospitals are full right now. If you're thinking of doing the milk carton challenge, call the hospital and make sure they have a bed available for you. <laughs> to which I thought to myself, if I'm ever making plans where I think to myself, I should get a reservation at the hospital. Don't do that thing, okay? Just whatever the plans were, don't do that. Stupid. And a lot of us are stupid. There's actually a guy who did an essay on human stupidity. His name is an Italian economist um, and historian, Carlo Cipolla, I think is how you pronounce his name. His essay is called The Basic Laws of Human Stupidity. The first law is this. Always and inevitably, everyone underestimates the number of stupid individuals in circulation. And we can talk about other people's stupidity all day long. There's criminals, there's laws, there's all kinds of stuff out there that when you look at it, you're like, why is that a thing? But remember the question I asked you. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done? In his essay, that same gentleman says this, a stupid person is the most dangerous type of person. And I would add, biblically, they're in the most danger. Because the Bible Although most translations don't usually use the word stupid or idiot or moron or language that sometimes is more common in our vernacular, they use the word fool. In fact, the Hebrew language, there are three different words for fool. All of them have a moral category. And so when you see the Bible, there is a section of the Bible that's actually called wisdom literature, and it's books like Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and the Psalms and the Proverbs, and they'll use those three Hebrew words. They're oftentimes contrasted with wisdom, and so the fool and then the wise. The fool and the wise person in the Bible is someone who has a skill for how to live their life. So what is the fool? Well, the Bible says things like this, Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The New Testament says in Romans chapter 1 that we all know that God exists. Whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, like we all know, you can just look at general revelation, oh, this didn't just happen. Like there is a creator, but the fool, though claiming to be wise, becomes a fool. How? Not living by faith. Instead, trusting creation rather than the creator, thinking they're smarter than God. Read all of Romans chapter 1. Jesus gives a parable about what a fool is. And he says, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, the fool is the person who doesn't build their life with the foundation of Jesus Christ as the foundation. So, it's really possible to even go to church, claim to follow God, and live the life of a fool. And we're going to talk about how today. But we're also going to talk about how to foolproof your life. That's what I've titled today's message. How to foolproof your life. If you've got your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 13, um, we're going to be going through uh, verse 7 through verse 20 really today. Uh, I'll start reading it in verse 20 and we'll, we'll pick that up and go a little bit backwards as we're walking through the passage. But if you haven't been with us, the summary of why Hebrews was written is for this, so you'd have faith. 
And for those of you who do have faith, you continue to walk by faith. Here's what's happening. Uh, There are people that because of what's happening in the culture around them are feeling a pressure to no longer follow Jesus, even though they've made a profession of faith. Can you relate? It's getting harder and harder to follow Jesus. And so the author's writing them to all these people, this, this house church that's, that's a Jewish group of believers, that's why it's called Hebrews. He's writing this letter to this church of Jewish people that are followers of Jesus and saying, Jesus is your only option. Not just he's greater, that's the title of our series. Oh yeah, he is greater. He's greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than angels, greater than, but he's your only sacrifice for sins. He's your only high priest. There's no other way you get to the Father but through him. The way that Jesus himself says it in the Gospels is, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The way the author of Hebrews says it is, God's only pleased by faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. But there's only one way to even get to God, and it's the one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. There are all these other sacrifices, and all they did was a shadow. They were a pointer. They pointed to the one sacrifice, Jesus. You have a high priest, single high priest, Jesus, and it's because of him that we can enter into the Father's presence with boldness, amen? Jesus is just a better option. He's not just one among many options. He's your only option, so keep following him, and that's what we've been talking about how to do ever since chapter 10 and 11 and 12, and now we're in 13, and it's not just a smattering of topics. We saw that 13 is, this is how you really live this faith life out. This is what a life of worship looks like, and a life of wisdom is a life of worship, and it's worshiping Him. And so far, we've seen how to interact with strangers, with hospitality, how to interact with people that are part of our family, with brotherly love, how to interact in our sex lives, with our financial lives, and every area of life. And now it talks about life in general. And look at what it says is happening. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, like I said, we're going to go all the way up to verse 7 and come back down through those verses. And what you're going to see is a really simple outline. So there's a lot of content, but I want to make it as simple as possible. And if you want to remember three words, remember the passage, it's this, in, under, out. In, because of inner transformation, that's where God begins. Under, because we go under, God-given authority. Out, because our lives actually aren't about us, they're about His glory, and we've got to go outside our little camps with the gospel to live that out. And so the language we use all the time at our church is spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. That's really the big umbrella of what's being said in this passage that wraps up Hebrews. And, And so we're going to start not at the first verse of this passage, but where God starts at working, and He doesn't start at working with our behavior, He starts with our hearts. And so for in... Remember, in, under, out. For in, it's that wise living or skill for living begins in the heart. Back to the passage, and I'll show you where that comes from in our passage. Verse 20 uh, talks about who God is. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. Now, here's what God does, verse 21. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, And here's the end, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Not even about you, what he's doing in you. It's actually about him and his glory and his fame. But notice the structure of the passage. Verse 20 is about who he is. Verse 21 is about what he does. We see a pattern of that throughout the Bible. People see God. When they see who he is and he reveals himself, then he changes them. And then what you often see is that that's their act of worship. Can be repentance, can be an awe, confession of sin, away from me, I'm a sinful man, I'm about to die, John in the book of Revelation, but God reveals himself, who he is, and it transforms who we are, and then we respond. That's our worship. And so you see in this passage, that's the structure, verse 20, who he is, verse 21, what he does. What is he doing here? It says here he's equipping you. Some of your translators say perfecting you. Uh, There are different words that are used there. It's really an interesting word in Greek. Uh, It's a word that's used for when someone breaks a bone and then the doctor resets that bone so that it can be strong again. It's kind of a word of restoration. 
or it's used of the disciples in the Gospels when they're mending their nets because they've been out fishing and the nets have gotten torn up, debris, shrapnel, all kinds of… Life has happened and there's wounds and there's difficulty and sometimes we put ourselves in bad situations, sometimes other people have hurt us and God's mending, putting back together. But when we read the word equip, what a lot of us think of is we're given the tools we need to do a job. So a lot of you, when I showed that news headline, uh, about four in ten is not a majority. Most of you knew that because you had a math class where the teacher said to you at some point, here's what you need to know how to solve a problem. Here's what a majority is. And so you've been equipped in math to know that that wasn't accurate. Or some of you have been in war or soldiers and someone gave you tools and skills to do a job. You were equipped for that, or you're doctors, or, or you're in construction, and you know you have to have the right materials. You've got to be able to figure out what it is you're trying to do. Like, you've been equipped to do that. This is bigger than that, because this is in the heart. And it's not just a putting, like, back together, like, you were in good shape when you were 20, but now that you're 40, not quite. You're getting injured while you're sleeping. Not a good thing. It's not that. The restoration that's taking place is the spiritual condition prior to sin. When there was no shame, and you were in right relationship with God under His authority, enjoying everything that He's done for you and that relationship that's unhindered by sin. That's the restoration that's taking place as He's equipping you, and it's a work that He does. Here's the problem. It's a whole lot easier for us, and this is why churches get this all messed up. People got it messed up in Bible times. People got it messed up in the Old Testament. People got it messed up in the New Testament. It's a whole lot easier to fix the outside than is the inside. And so we would rather have plastic surgery than a new diet and start exercising and change our way of life. We'd rather, you know, get a Band-Aid than have a tumor removed. Like, we'd rather fix so that things look good rather than actually deal with real problems because we can control that. It's like uh, I told you all a couple months ago that I had a problem with my deck, and so I called the guy, and he came over. I thought it was going to be a couple boards needed to be replaced. I know lumber's high, so it's going to be like a couple hundred dollars. We'll pull the boards off, fix the boards. We'll be good to go. And he looked at my deck and said, you have significant problems, <laughs> to which I was like, that's what my wife tells me. That's what my friends tell me. Like, I don't know. I thought you were just fixing my deck. And so he starts looking at the deck. He tells me I've got structural issues. And I thought it's wise to get a second opinion. So I got a second opinion, the third opinion. Yeah, they all agreed. I got problems, major problems. And so I'm hearing this theme and I found a great deck guy. If you need a deck guy, I got a guy. He's a great guy. So we had him do the work. And he said, here's what it's going to be. I felt like he was super honest, all those kinds of things. And he told me there were structural problems. And he told me we needed to rebuild the deck. Then he pulled all the boards off. And he didn't say anything in the text message after he pulled the boards off. He just sent me pictures. They were this, these pictures. I put them on the screen. I've got them on my phone. You're all deck experts. I didn't even know. <laughs> the whole church of them. You all could have just come to my house. We could have dealt with this. But uh, we started texting with each other. I was about to go into an appointment. I was walking into a, an appointment with a, a guy, and so I was trying to text real quick. And I saw these pictures, and I just said, yikes, I'm no expert, but that's bad. <laughs> he replied, Yes. I hate to be the bearer of bad news on that, though, but I definitely wouldn't feel comfortable doing any new decking on top of that by any means. It's amazing how that rock can hide from below. You really can't see it on any of the bottom of the boards except a few. It really does rot from the inside out. I replied, well, not to go all pastor on this, but... <laughs> It's like when a friend or God lovingly exposes wickedness in my heart, not pleasant to learn or realize, but not knowing didn't make it any less true. How can this be dealt with? Yeah, there's a reason why Jesus, when he sees the religious people, says, you hypocrites, we might say to someone, you moron, what are you doing? You haven't dealt with your real issues, but you have everybody thinking things are good. You see, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, and sometimes people put that on uh, social media like, hey, he's endorsed people's sin. No, he's not saying like, hey, you should rip people off, tax collectors are doing. They know they're sinners. He doesn't need to tell them. They're not even allowed to go to church in his day. These other people think they have it together, so he says things like this, Matthew chapter 23, if you want to check me on this. He says, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. In another place, he says, and you'd be unclean for going by a tomb. He says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. The outside looks great. What's inside? It's all dead. Do you know what he says to them, though? It's pretty wild. If you reflect on this in the Scriptures, he says, first clean the inside of the cup, to which if they thought about that, they'd have to think to themselves, I can't, because I can't change what I want. 
I can't change my desires. I can't change what's inside of me. I'm doing this because I can manage this. And that's what we do. I had to get a whole new deck. You know what the Bible says about what's inside of us? Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all else. Who can know it? But you know what most people don't quote is verse 10. The Lord searches the heart. That's who can know it, by the way. That's what's being said. And do you know what else gets promised? To the people that are sacrificing all those rams and trying to be good enough, and I just, if I could, God, there's going to come a day where God gives a new covenant, and there's a new promise, and you'll have a new heart. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Go ahead and check me. I'm not making this stuff up. Do you know what Hebrew says? That Jesus brings the new covenant. That, that he's the one who can give you a new heart. And then here in our passage, we're seeing this structure of the passage where it's saying, here's who God is, here's what God does. He's equipping you. Equipping you for what? What's he equipping you for? Did you look at the passage? Your pastor's opinion does not matter. What matters is what does God's word say? What does it say? Verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Okay, so he's giving you everything you need the transformation inside, whatever resources and abilities in your life to do His will. What is His will? Working in us, keep going, the Bible answers its own questions, that which is pleasing in His sight. Okay, now somebody could grab this verse and just make up a list of a bunch of stuff that they think pleases God. Some of it might be good, some of it might be wrong, but how do we know? Well, we've been studying Hebrews together. And even though we did just a survey of Hebrews chapter 11, that's where the answer is. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about pleasing God. And it says, and I cited it, I didn't quote it, but I kind of mentioned it and said it earlier, but look at it, we'll put it up on the screen, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, and without faith, it's impossible to do what? Please Him. So to bring Him pleasure, without faith, that is never happening. So your morality, that's not what does it, unless your morality is because of a transformation in your heart, then now you're trusting Him to do what He says because you think that what He says is better than what you think. Otherwise, you're just doing what the Pharisees are doing. But if you're doing it by faith, that's different because it's inward to out. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. And so, pleasing Him is living by faith. And that's interesting since the rest of the Bible says that the opposite of faith is called foolishness. Do you want foolproof of your life? Live by faith. You know how that happens? It starts in your heart. How does that happen? He tells us in this passage. He tells us right here who he is and then what he does. But remember how he does it? How he does it was right in the middle. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. So he's doing a work. He's doing it because of what will come out of you. What is, how does he do it? Working in us. So working in our hearts. Great news is it's not just in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and in Hebrews. He still does it today. He's done it in some of your hearts. And that's why some of those people said amen. Those of you who are new to church, you're like, no, amen means that's true. That's true. And they're saying that that's true for me. That's happened in my life. And so I was watching a story of a guy this week. His name is Jim Monroe. If you want to Google him, he's a magician. Magicians are fascinating to me. I don't know how to do any magic. But I'm curious about why they would want to do what they're doing. Why do you want to trick people for the sake of entertainment? And then why do we like being deceived? Like, why do we like being tricked? Is it you're trying to figure it out, or is it just like, wow, it's amazing, or you're good at your craft? Like, all kinds of different reasons, but why? And so I'm watching this guy, Jim Monroe, share his story, and he talked about how he became a magician. He just always did tricks. He was always playing with cards as a kid, and as he's telling it, he's like kind of playing with these cards. And then he said, uh, but you become skeptical, because what you know about magic is there's always a scheme. There's always something behind the scenes that's happening, and there's always a sleight of hand or a distraction. And he said, so it starts to make you think about life. There's always something false behind it, always something untrue, phony. And he said, so the idea of God was silly. It felt like the Wizard of Oz, a man behind the curtain pulling the strings. I mean, come on, give me a break. And he said, but then I got invited to church when I was in college, and God did something that day inside of me. And it was like I heard the story a little different, and I started to ask the God question. The God question is, is there more? Is there really a God? Is what the Bible talks about and everything it points to, which is Jesus, is that actually true? And so he said, that day I got down on my knees when I got home and I prayed. And he said, I prayed. And he basically just prayed, God, reveal yourself. But he said, God, if this is true, make it real. Pull the curtain back. And he prayed that for years. He was 29 years old. He'd been married for five years. He had two kids. And he said, I started to have this numbness in my leg that hurt. 
And so I started taking about 10 Advil a day. Eventually, my wife and I decided it would be a good idea to go to the hospital. I went to the hospital. Long story short, they came in and told him, you have cancer. My white blood cell count set us off. We did some tests. He had leukemia. Again, making a long story short, he ended up at MD Anderson. They did all kinds of tests. They talk about looking on the inside. Uh, scans and probes and all kinds of draws of labs and all kinds of things. And then they came in and they said, we've got bad news. He's already been diagnosed with cancer. So he said, like worse than cancer? I said, your cancer is more rare than we thought it was. So we thought we were going to treat it with chemotherapy, but the kind of cancer you have, we know that we can put it in remission and it will just come back. So if you do nothing, you will die in at least two months. Or we can put your cancer into remission and there's a treatment we can try that might totally heal you. Oh, uh, okay. And they told him that he needed a bone marrow transplant. And he began to explain how the doctor explained that to him. And the way that he explained it was, he said, what you need to do is fight the cancer until we get into remission. Once we get into remission, we need to find somebody who's a perfect DNA match with you. And that's also willing to give their DNA so that we can basically, he said, in summary, what they did is they want to take the immune system out of one person's body and then put it in my body and then hope that my body recognizes it as my own immune system and then starts to build its own white blood cells. And then he laughed and said, that's real magic. <laughs> and uh, he talked about the experience of that. And he said they went to find a donor and looked at his biological sister and his own biological sister was not a match. That doesn't give you a lot of hope, just so you know. And so they went to this database, had 7 million people in this database. There were 16 potential matches. There was one perfect match. It was a 19-year-old girl. He's a 29-year-old man. And he said um, she agreed to give me um, her bone marrow. And he said that day in the hospital, the language they used, I had heard it before. They said, you're going to be reborn. You're going to have somebody else living in you. You're really going to have a second birthday. And he said, those were things I had heard that type of language in Scripture. He said, so here I was, I prayed this prayer. It's pretty hard to ignore what God's doing, that if you would look at my DNA, I have DNA of a 19-year-old girl, but I'm a 29. There's literally someone, it's not me who lives, someone else living in me. And then he said, I believe that everyone has a spiritual cancer, and the only answer is Jesus. He says, as a magician and a skeptic, I not only believe who he is, I believe what he's done. God still does that. The way the Bible talks about it for us as followers of Christ is that he became sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, who knew no sin so we could become the righteousness of God. Now think about that. That 19-year-old girl didn't take his cancer. Jesus is doing more for you than that. So he took on your sin, at the, your cancer, if you want to use that language, at the cross and the wrath of God at the cross so that when God looks at you, he sees the DNA of Jesus pumping through your veins and sees his righteousness. That's who he is. And what has he done? You wouldn't even believe in him if he hadn't given you the gift of faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. So he does this work that starts in your life. But he's not just the author of your faith. He's the perfecter of your faith. He wants you to continue to walk by faith. And our passage today is saying he gives you what you need to do that, the heart change you need to continue to walk by faith. That's why it says equips you. How? By doing a work in you. But remember the structure of the passage. It's significant in the process of transformation. It started with who he is. We haven't even talked about that. And that then reveals what he does. We've been talking about that. So who is he? Go back up to verse 20. Now may the God of peace, pause. The Bible oftentimes, uh, the Psalms will say, Selah. Let's just think and reflect on the titles that he's given in this passage. Peace comes from the Hebrew idea of shalom, a wholeness. It means you are lacking something that's given. Uh, when we think of peace, we often think of an absence of conflict as Americans. But that's true as well, because you were God's enemy, and his wrath was coming after you. And because of what his son did when he gave his son, and he absorbed that wrath and became that cancer on the cross, that his wrath no longer coming after you. So you have peace with God. But God's peace is even more encompassing than that. We read throughout the scriptures of having a peace that surpasses all understanding and that in all circumstances we can have the peace of God. And think about Selah. Why would you have that? How could you have that? We think some of the arguments we've seen in Hebrew so far that you shouldn't love money. Why? Because God's always present. Huh? How do those even go together in my categories? Um, 
Because anything temporary that can be taken from you, that what you have that's eternal can never be taken from you, and God can never be taken from you. Is he your foundation? Because if he's your foundation, if he's not your foundation, you're a fool, the Bible says. But if he's your foundation, that's how you foolproof your life. You can have peace, wholeness, peace with, peace of. Who brought again from the dead? Well, he's got power over the dead? Um, let me just ask you this. You think about his peace, and we sing songs like Amazing Grace. Have you ever actually been amazed by his grace? And then you see something like he's got victory over death. And some of you are here for Easter, and we're talking about resurrection, and we talk about new life, and he gives these things. Have you ever been overwhelmed by his omnipotence? Are you consumed trying to gain your own power? And you see here that he brought his son, while that's significant about his sovereignty, have you ever seen how sovereign God is and it just sits you in silence? Whoa, talk about Selah. Wow, you're orchestrating and doing a bazillion things in every given conversation and circumstance, not just tragedies, not just triumphs, but in everything. You watch every sparrow and know every hair that's on my head and you're using all of those things to orchestrate your divine plan for your glory and ultimately my good even when it's really painful. Wow, be silenced. Like Job, where were you when I? He brought his Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. What's a shepherd? A protector and a provider and a guider because we're the sheep and we need protection and provision and guidance. As much as we want autonomy and independence, what we need is a leader, and he is that. By the blood of the eternal covenant. That's reference to giving us a new heart. He's the one who gives us a new heart. I mean, So what happens throughout the Bible and what's happening in this passage is as you see him, he works in you that then changes how you interact with the world around you in every area, other Christians, non-Christians, your spouse, your finances, how you interact just in life decision-making, wisdom, like all of it. And so do you see him? Because it starts there. Do you see him? In our passage, it says as well, we haven't read the verse yet. In verse 8, it says, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Pause and think about that, Selah. But when he goes to the temple, he gets really mad and angry and overturns tables. But sometimes he falls asleep in the middle of a storm. That seems different. What do you mean he's the same? He cries over Jerusalem. He rejoices. So, yeah, he has emotions, and he responds in different circumstances differently. But what doesn't change is his character. What anchors those responses is his character. His character is always the same. So what does that mean to you? Selah. That means you've never been loved more than you are right now. His love for God is, his character is love. His love for you never changes. Oh, but you don't know what I did. We're talking about his character, not your performance. His love never changes. Do you see him? It's not just that. It's, you can walk through this passage. You can walk through the whole book of Hebrews. If you go to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Do you see him? He's the anchor of our souls. Don't drift. Do you see him? We said in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. So he begins our faith. He's got a promise that he's going to complete our faith, Philippians 1, 6. So how creative is that? We talk about creation as his creativity. How limited of a view of God's creativity is that? Think about what he does in your life. Think about the fact that everybody here who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ has the same story. You recognize you were a sinner, you needed a savior, you humbled yourself and asked him to be your savior. But nobody here has the same story. That's creative. Have you ever been captivated by his creativity? Do you see him? And you can keep going. And we talked about, I alluded to the promise in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. He's always presence. That's where you find peace. It's in his presence. You've been silenced by his sovereignty, amazed by his grace, in awe of his might, captivated by his creativity, overwhelmed by his omniscience. He's there. Do you see him? Because that's how he reveals himself. And then it changes us within us, and it leads to us living different, which is what we see in the next part of the passage. Wise living lives under God-given authority. (laughs) Before I mention this, let me just say, it's not lost on me that it's ironic to be a spiritual authority telling you to submit to authority. And definitely got to check my own heart of not being self-serving in doing that, but at the very least, it's an awkward conversation. I'm okay with awkward conversations. I have them for a living. (laughs) So we're going to keep talking about this, 
But I want you to know that I believe, as I search my own heart, I have no desire for you to obey me because I'm sinful and messed up. But this passage says you're supposed to obey your spiritual leaders. So how do I share this with you? Let's look at it, and then we'll talk about it. So Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 says this. Remember your leaders. Okay, these are ones from the past. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What I think is being said here, some of these people may have died as martyrs. They're probably all dead. At the very least, they're a part of their past. And what I think this is supposed to function like is like Hebrews chapter 11, where you're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses and their lives cry out to you, it's worth it, do it. I'm saying, think about, so you're thinking about good leaders here. This isn't all leaders. Just think about good leaders, but they're gone. And so then that's why verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Their lives were supposed to point to him. So no matter how great their lives were, no matter how gifted they were at something or how popular they were, you know, we live in this celebrity culture for a Christian, and it's like, well, only listen to people who've sold this many books or only to have these, like, that's all fine, whatever. You can like it or not like it. It is what it is. But are they pointing you to Jesus or to themselves? So they're pointing to themselves. Don't follow those people. But if you can follow people that say, like Paul does, follow me as I follow Christ, they're trying to get you to Jesus, because the whole goal is to spread the fame of his name, even when those people are gone. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Then it says, verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. So the role of a leader is to help protect you like a shepherd from wolves. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not, and he's probably alluding to a, a false teaching of that time, and there's thousands of them ever since, not by foods which have been which have not benefited those devoted to them. Well, here's the problem as we talk about authorities, is that we want autonomy, not authority. Autonomy is the enemy of authority. The problem with that is that we are people that are under authority, God's authority, and the point of being under other authorities is to reveal a life of faith that is under God's authority. It's a way to live that out practically other than just saying, yeah, I believe in God. It's like, how do we live that out? And the Bible says a lot about authority. We don't have time to unpack all that. It could be its own sermon series, but how about this in our day and age where we have all these political arguments? Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And if you look at the Bible, that's true about the good ones and the bad ones. That God's ultimately sovereign over all of the government authorities. Peter says this to a persecuted church who are being persecuted by the emperor, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake, not about you, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's their purpose. That's what they're supposed to be doing. For this is the will of God, that's his desire, we know that's to live by faith, to please him, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, the people who live like there is no God, reveal God in your life. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. But wait, there's a time to rebel, right? I mean, because think about it, like all of us here are part of some rebel group, by the way. You're American. (laughs) Uh, Did you know there's a reason we have a Declaration of Independence? (laughs) We didn't like how somebody else was leading, so we threw all their tea in the harbor. (laughs) There's a bigger story than all that, but you're taxing us. We don't like the way you're trying to make us, you know, submit to your religion. We're out. 1776, it's not just fireworks and barbecue, just so you know. We're rebels. We are rebels as Americans. That's why we have a Declaration of Autonomy, Independence, that we will be on our own. But of those of you that I know, and I know several of your stories of denominational backgrounds and different things, and we have people that are Methodist, Presbyterian, no church background, um, you know, some kind of Reformed church background, Charismatics, you know, Nazarene, Baptist, like all this stuff. You're Protestants. That all falls underneath the same umbrella. You're a protester. So by your country, by your religious background, you are a rebel. And what happened with that, and if you're Catholic, you don't fall into that because the Catholic Church was so corrupt that there was a guy that one day led a reformation of the church when he said, you guys are charging people money to you for their forgiveness from God. That's not right. (laughs) So, but he knew the Bible said you're supposed to submit to authority. Why is he rebelling? 
Because the way the Bible presents that is, unless they tell you to not submit to a higher authority, which is God. And so that's why you see things like last week we looked at Acts chapter 4, and I told you when we were talking about God's presence, uh, John and Peter were ordinary, uneducated men, and they were astonished by them because they had been with Jesus. They were preaching Jesus, had been arrested, were standing before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court was telling them not to preach Jesus. And if you jump down a little bit in that passage, like verses 18, 19, 20, it says that they say to the Supreme Court, Sanhedrin's what they called it at that point, uh, yeah, we're going to keep doing that. Yeah, don't do that. Okay, we're going to. Bye. And they go do it, and they're punished and flogged. You keep reading through Acts. There, there are consequences. You may get your head cut off. You still have God. You're built on a foundation. You're under his authority. That's what's being revealed in these relationships. The way this is even presented in this passage of Scripture with your spiritual authorities that are here, the context is they're good ones because they're teaching you God's Word. There are a lot of bad ones. What's being said in the verse I'm about to read you in verse 17 is not unquestioning loyalty even to a pastor or spiritual leader. That's how a bunch of people like poison themselves and cults get started and a lot of weird things happen. That's not right. That's how from underneath God's authority… But when it says to obey your leaders in verse 17, they're the leaders that are teaching you God's Word. What it's ultimately saying is, obey God's Word, the Word that those leaders are teaching you. So if I say to you, hey, go wash my car, you'd be like, that's not in the Bible. You're right. I'd still let you wash my car, but you don't have to do that. But if I say to you, love your enemies, forgive those who've sinned against you, you should obey that because that's coming from God's Word. And so here it talks about that and it says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. It's a heavy weight to be a spiritual leader. And so this is a message not just for me, but our elder, other pastors and, and elders in our church, those words are used interchangeably in the Bible. Let them do this with joy. Here's why it's not joy. It's not just like it's hard because there's lots of work and that's true. Listen, pastors can be some of the biggest babies in the world. Can I just say that? I've got friends watching. Like if you're watching and you're not preaching today, you, why don't be a little whiny baby? Like pastors think like if you say something, everybody's supposed to like you and supposed to build up some. I posted something this week. Like this is, I'm not going to get a statement about it right now, but the Roe v. Wade uh, decision that was made this week, I posted something about it. I try to be really compassionate. There's probably 40 or 50 women in our church who've had abortions. We love you. God's not done with you. I'm not trying to heap shame on you. It's wrong that babies are being killed. That is a clear biblical statement. It's not a political statement. There is life, and you can't take life. And so we care about these babies. So I'm sorry about these six million babies that have been dead. We should have done something sooner. Do you know who got upset with me? Church people. That's why. That's why being a pastor is hard. It's not hard because, like, if you say, of course you know if you take a stand for anything, people are going to be mad. If you're a people pleaser, don't ever become a pastor unless God makes you, okay? <laughs> so that's why I'm saying a bunch of them are babies because, and I'm saying, like, I'm so tough. But did you know that one in ten pastors at the pandemic wanted to take their own life? One in ten have a disastrous marriage. That's at least ten percent. So these are people that are preaching about the abundant life. I'm talking about the bridegroom and the bride and Jesus and like, but what's happening in their life? Like it's hard. There's lots of pressure, lots of things. I'm not whining about that, but you make it harder because there's ripple effects of sin when you don't obey God's word. Because then they have to step in and help you with your mess that you created, that you're professing you don't want to create, but you're living like a practical atheist, a fool because you're denying the existence of God by your behavior, but then you're proclaiming that it's true. So Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, and we actually proclaim it with our lives because our lives come out of worship and wisdom, and we're all under authority, even me. My daughter asked me last week, I don't know if it's irony, coincidence, God's always teaching me stuff as I'm preaching it, said, do you own the church? <laughs> no. And we've got entrepreneur friends that have been over, and she's heard us have conversation. We talk about how they started their business, how we started the church. And so my wife and I you know, came here and started the church. I said, Jesus owns the church. So then she says, can you get fired? <laughs> I don't know if she pictured like Jesus walking in, like, no, nah, that's a bad message, Scott. You're fired. Like, I, don't know. Um, I said, well, there's a group of men. Uh, they're called the elders. They've been to our house. You know who they are. So she's 10 years old. And I said, uh, they can fire, not one of them, but like together they can fire me if I'm not doing my job or I do something stupid. I said, so we're all under authority. And she said, um, what if they're just mean? And I was like, that happens sometimes. I've got friends. They've got stories. We can talk about that. I said, but the key is to get good guys in there in the first place. And then, Lord willing, that doesn't happen. But if you don't think you're under authority, you are. And I told the first service, throw a brick through the window in the lobby. Find out. RPD's here. They'll escort you somewhere, <laughs> not to your house. <laughs> we're all under authority. But when we submit to that God-given authority, it's countercultural, and we're living by faith. 
And ultimately, this overflows into all of our relationships. Wise living results in going outside your camp. So in, under, out. Outside your camp. Verse 10. We have an altar from, so here's the worship language again, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The priests couldn't eat the sacrifices. Uh, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And so on the Day of Atonement, they would bring all these animals, they'd sacrifice them in the Holy of Holies. Jewish people knew this. This flies over most of our heads. They would take those animals, there's too many of them to even keep in that room, and they'd burn them outside the camp, outside the city gates, and that was considered unholy, unclean. Those animals were being sacrificed for sins, and so they became sin in their minds. There's a transference. And so what happens here in verse 12, he says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Read John chapter 19, when Jesus was killed, it was outside the city gate. In order to sanctify, wait, to set apart people, sanctify means to set apart, to sanctify people through his own blood. So some skeptics of this church at this time were saying, because Jesus was killed outside the city gates, Jesus was unclean. That's where you take the unclean animals and you burn those bodies. He's acknowledging their argument here when he's saying, no, but Jesus did it to sanctify you. Think about this. When Jesus had a leper touch him or he touched a leper, most people would have become unclean. Jesus didn't become unclean. Instead, he cleansed the leper. That's the argument that he's making here is when Jesus went outside the city gates and in that unholy place died for unholy people, he was doing it so they could become holy, set apart for God. And then he tells us as people who have experienced that, who have that Jesus' DNA pumping through our veins, verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Why would we do that? For here we have no lasting city. This isn't our home, but we seek a city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. Remember the context as a life of wisdom, as a life of worship. Jesus himself did this. One of the best examples in the New Testament is in John chapter 4. When Jesus talked about going outside the camp, Jews didn't travel through Samaria. Jesus went to Samaria and has this meeting with a Samaritan woman. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament because it is the gospel. And it is what God wants each one of us. We see who he is to experience in our hearts, to be fully known and fully loved. This woman's coming to the well in the middle of the day because she lives in shame. And she wants to be alone. She doesn't want to be condemned anymore. And I've read this passage dozens, maybe hundreds of times in my life. About a month ago, I watched it. Um, The Chosen series has put it out. Somebody sent me a link. I made the mistake of watching that because I'm German. I'm not highly emotional. I think about what's happening, not feel how things are happening. I was broken after watching this. It wrecked me. I started watching and hadn't really thought about if I were the Samaritan woman, what would I think about these things Jesus is saying? And so Jesus is sitting at this well, and this woman comes who's trying to be alone, and he starts asking for a drink at first, but then says, I have living water. I think if someone said to me at a bus stop, I have living water, I would think, the life of a pastor. Why do all the weird people want to talk to me? This is weird. Don't talk about living water. That's not normal. Stop talking that way. I'd have thought he lost his mind. I wouldn't have thought, oh, maybe you're the Messiah. Like when I read the Bible, though, I'm thinking like, oh, he's pointing to himself as the Messiah. So he starts this conversation with her. And she starts kind of mocking him, being sarcastic back. And, and then he starts to reveal who God is as they talk about worship. So God is spirit. Those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. And then she says, yeah, well, no, when the Messiah comes, and he says, I am he. She says, prove it. So he's revealing himself as God now. He was revealing God. Now he's going to reveal himself. He says, go call your husband. How does that prove he's God? Because he's about to prove his omniscience, that he knows everything. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right. You don't have a husband. You've had five, though. Uh, hold up, personal violation. We don't want to talk about all this. He's, it's like the deck. He's pulling the layers back. Let's get to the heart. Let's get to what's going on. And this gets real messy and ugly first. She argues with him a little bit, and she starts to leave. And then as she's leaving, he stands up and says, Ramiel, which I, then I was done. Because now he's going to start listing her husbands. And I think, well, that doesn't happen in the Bible. Well, the Bible, it says, and John tells us he doesn't write down everything because he can't write down everything because there's not enough space. But he says, there's a man who told me everything I ever did, but I had never thought about what that experience was like. And what he says to her is, Ramiel, that was the first. He was not a good man. He hurt you. He made you question 
marriage and the practice of your faith. And then she pauses and then starts to leave again. And he says, Farazad, on your wedding night, he smelled like oranges. Every time you pass oranges on the market, you feel guilty for leaving him. He was the only righteous man you ever knew. And I was done. Because this is what it looks like to have all your sin exposed and still be loved. Not be con- He's not condemning her. He's revealing himself to her. It's not even about her. It's about him. And she says, are you the Messiah? Yeah. Then I've got to go tell everybody about you. And that's what she does. Because that's what happens. But you know what we do in our day and age? Strive for autonomy. We stay with our camp because everybody else is an idiot. And the Bible says, no, if you've been transformed by him, you get outside the camp. You've got to get everybody access to this Jesus. Have you seen him? Father, I come before you. I hope that we've seen you some today, that you revealed yourself some today, and that you change us at least a little. You say in Second uh, Corinthians 3, I think it is, from one degree to the next, we see your glory. We become what we behold. I pray that you've been exalted, that you've been lifted up, and that lives will be changed. I pray that we would be a little bit more like you, and I pray that people who don't know you would come to know you. I pray for the spouse who's been coming to church because their spouse makes them come but has no interest in you. Change that. And if you're that person, I dare you to pray what that magician prayed. God, reveal yourself. Just so you know, it might get ugly, but he's there. Father, I pray you'd make this real for all of us. I pray there's somebody listening for just this moment right now that you would put in them the God question, is there more? Is there more than this? They wouldn't arrogantly think they know more than you, but they'd humble themselves and seek what you have to say. And you'd reward them by giving them faith, that one thing that pleases you. And Father, I pray for those of us who do know you, that you would transform our hearts, that we would not run to comfort, just our own camp, just our own preconceived ideas, whether they be familial, country, political, denominational, but we would be transformed by your word and by your presence. Do that in our midst, even as we sing this next song. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.